leaders. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders and leaders of every stripe. The sweet spot is the future of work and business. Hi, my name is Laura Eyre, and in today's episode, myself and my colleague Emily Svadlanak speak to Binu Paul, Specialist Lead FinTech at the Financial Markets Authority of New Zealand. Binu's career has spanned a variety of roles in financial services, technology innovation and commercialisation over the past 20 years in New Zealand and overseas. Before taking on his current role at the FMA in late 2020, Binu founded a number of fintech startups and has also been instrumental in organising and mobilising the fintech community in New Zealand. Previously, he was CEO of an investment research business as well as headed up business strategy for one of New Zealand's largest investment fund managers. Prior to his training on strategy execution at the Wharton Business School of the University of Pennsylvania, Binu gained both an MBA and a Bachelor of Technology degree. He is a founding member of Fintech NZ, a current board member of Child Fund New Zealand, and is the chair of Fintech Working Group of the Council of Financial Regulators in New Zealand. Thank you, Benu, for joining us on today's podcast. Um, before we get started into the wider topic um, of innovation and fintech, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your role at the FMA, that is the Financial Markets Authority of New Zealand? Sure. So currently I'm the specialist lead for fintech and innovation at the FMA in New Zealand. Um, Prior to this, I've had a long history in financial services in general, largely in funds management and investment research. But back in 2013, I kind of quit a day job from the corporate sector to build the iTunes app, which is one of the very first fintechs that was catering to KiwiSaver here in New Zealand. Um, and since then, I've uh, dabbled in a couple more other uh, fintech initiatives. Uh, and more recently, in November, is when I started in a full-time role at the FMA. Uh, I was on the verge of relocating to London at one stage with one of my startups, and that's when COVID came along. So I'm still here in New Zealand. So the role came up at a really good time for you, I suppose. And your experience in the fintech industry must be so uh, beneficial to this role at the FMA as well. How has that shaped your view on innovation in the fintech space? Yeah, so uh, in my mind, innovations really uh, come into the financial services sector only in the last probably 10 to 15 years. And there's probably been a confluence of a number of technologies that's enabled innovation to come through. And so the way I look at it, innovation is all about creative disruption and you can pick any sector and it's all about what are the elements of the sector that technology can enable to make it either cheaper, faster or better for the consumer of that particular product or service. And so when it comes to fintech, uh, we had a you know big explosion of social media because of technologies like Web 2.0. And then you had a confluence of things like blockchain that came into that mix, which enabled innovators to kind of put ideas together and create solutions for consumers. So in that sense, in the last 10 or 15 years, I've seen a massive kind of creative disruption, as I call it, in the financial services sector. So it's helped that I've come out of the industry and it's helped that I've got myself involved in a couple of startup initiatives as well. And so now that I'm within the regulator, it kind of gives you a really good balance of what life looks like for an innovator. At the same time, what are the things that the regulator needs to be conscious of 
when you're enabling innovators to actually go out and experiment. So it kind of gives you a perspective from both sides of the equation in some ways. So. And um, you touched on the innovation side of things just now, but in broad terms, how would you define innovation and specifically for the fintech sector? And are there differences in how that affects startups versus established businesses, for example? For a long time, I always thought about innovation as a new invention or, or um, changing the status quo. But over the last 10 or 15 years, I mean, I think probably largely when I started getting into my own kind of innovation journeys when I realized an essential part of proper innovation is being the ability to commercialize that idea as well. So you can tinker around with millions of ideas, but it's probably a handful that you can actually commercialize, you can execute and make it a sustainable business model. So innovation, I think, is a confluence of both the creativity in thinking plus the ability to commercialize the creative solution. And so in that sense, uh, innovation for me needs a blend of both. Um, and typically any industry or any sector where there's a massive um, sunk cost to actually set up and establish, it's primed to be disrupted because you'll have a lot of legacy costs built into the large incumbent structures, whereas a smart, agile startup can come along and completely disrupt them. So if you take a bank, for example, um, we all call it a bank, but they provide probably eight different services. So a single startup could come along and creatively kind of disrupt one of those. Seven more can come up and disrupt the other seven. So from a bank's perspective, you've got multiple startups looking at different parts of that business. So the question really is, how does a large established business then bring in innovation as part of their working culture? And... Uh, I do a lot of mentoring work and a lot of consulting work, both with established firms and, and with startups. One of my observations is the minute someone says we've created an innovation team, that's when you know it's not going to take off. Because innovation is not a thing that you do. It's a culture that you build into across your organization. So the minute someone put to, puts together an innovation team, you know you have a problem. It's not going to go anywhere. Innovation doesn't happen that way. So innovation for me is ultimately about putting the user at the center. So if you're not solving a problem for your customer, you're not really innovating anything. You just came up with a clever idea. It's just an idea. It's not a business idea. And so for innovation, um, the user needs to be the center. So even with, whether it's large organizations or small startups, the real question is, are you actually solving real problems for real customers that they're happy to pay you for? If you don't have that, you're not going to innovate. You can tinker with an idea, but are you going to fail? And so, which is also why you find a very large uh, failure rate in this in this space. So if you're an unfunded startup, the average is around 1.8% success rate. So for every 100 startups that are unfunded, rough and ready, less than two of them will survive. If you're a funded startup, that gets up to around 8 or 10%. I mean, these are averages from probably a few years ago that might have changed. But that's how high the failure rate is around innovation. Largely because everyone can come up with a great idea, but executing it is whether it becomes black or white. Either you do it or you don't. Execution is quite harsh in that sense. So again, when you're doing, I'm digressing a little bit, but when you're doing a corporate strategy kind of consulting work for someone, you know, you can, you can hire 10 consultants, all 10 will come up 10 different solutions. The real question is which one of them is going to get executed properly? 
So without the execution, that doesn't actually work. And so therein lies the difference between invention and innovation as well. It's all about the execution of the creative thinking. So for a large company, how do you approach innovation? Like I said, put the user at the center. You then allow your staff to permit to fail. So that permission to fail, I think, is a very important part of innovation because that's when you experiment. Most large organizations, you can't change the status quo because you think it's too risky. Innovation is all about changing the status quo. That's exactly what innovation is. So giving people the ability to fail or the permission to fail, not the ability, but the permission to fail, I think is very important when, when you're trying to create that innovation culture. And finally, it's about, like I said, executing it properly. So to me, that's quite important. I always argue that innovation is not exclusive to any one individual, any one organization. Anybody can do it. It's all about ensuring that you're, one, thinking creatively for solutions to problems. So you identify the problem properly, come up with the right solution, test it with the user, and then ensure that it's a sustainable business model because they're going to have to continue to pay you so you can continue to do what you do. So that's my kind of view. That's so well said, Banu. And I think your role with the FMA has come at such a, a valid time for the industry where there is so much innovation. And I think your industry experience proves that too, that you really do need to have really well researched your solution for the consumer and have some basic level of understanding of the legislation that surrounds the financial services sector. So your role with the FMA, how, how big is this in helping companies on that innovation journey? So... Um there's two, two, two parts to every solution. So as I said, innovation does bring in a um, large amount of customer benefits. So um, innovation in fintech today means that, as I said earlier on, you get cheaper, faster or better solutions for consumers. What does that mean for you? Uh, so when you're applying for insurance, it's highly customized to you as an individual. When you're applying to get a wealth management solution, potentially you don't have to go through a human advisor sitting down on all the rest of it. Potentially an automated solution might actually help you do that, or maybe a hybrid solution, which is appearing to be more effective today because humans don't trust these technologies as much. So so one, one side of the equation is customer benefits. So the flip side is the harms that come along with it. So as and when you move to a point where you're leaving a large digital footprint you know, it enables the technology to customize the solution because the tool understands you better. Uh, but at the same time, you've got harms around privacy and ethics and trust and all those issues. So from a regulatory perspective, the question is, how do you balance those two? So one, you want to bring the customer benefits, you want to bring in competition, you want to bring in innovation. But then you, how do you balance that off with all the other risks that come along with it? So I think it's uh, critical to understand what the implications of these kind of new products and services are uh, in terms of that particular sector. And financial services, by its very nature, it's, it's a relatively more regulated sector than most other sectors, as opposed to travel bookings, for example, uh, you know, or ride-hailing um, you know, apps and things like that. And expanding on that, what do you think are some of the trends that you've seen come through in the last five years that you believe enforce that sort of mentality around innovation, fintechs, regulatory bodies working together? So um, if, I were to, if I were to look at probably just one aspect of what's coming through, if I look at the common theme across most of the innovation ideas that I'm coming across in the sector, it's all about how 
the entire sector is getting disintermediated. And what I mean by that is the newest financial products and services typically tend to enable individuals to interact between each other rather than have a financial institution sitting in the middle. So the whole idea of broking or banking is actually moving away to more technically called peer-to-peer, meaning individual to individual. So potentially, when you look at an insurance solution, a group of 100,000 or 50,000 people might get together and insure each other. So the traditional insurance company doesn't exist in that model because we are all putting premiums into the common pool. We've got an algorithm that's going to work out at the claim time who's going to pay out what. Um, And so invariably, your insurance actually, um, what you pay for your insurance actually comes down quite dramatically, depending on how risky the algorithm thinks you are. So it all comes down to what the data, it's a data-driven solution, so to say. So for example, uh, today when you uh, pay for your car insurance, you're paying on the assumption that 100% of the time the car is being used. So there's solutions today that will charge you only for the 40% that you take the car out of the garage. So suddenly it's made it cheaper for you because someone else might be using it 100%. You're using it only 40%. The premium you pay will be the same as the other person. So in some ways you're actually subsidizing today. You're subsidizing other people for their risky behavior. So in the new world, you can have an insurance scheme where it's completely customized the risk that you take. So there are companies that now insure your camera for the two hours that you take it out to the zoo. So rather than pay home and content for the whole year, you kind of pay only for that. So it's an on-demand. It's an, ins- it's an insurance on-demand. So suddenly it becomes a cheaper solution for a lot of people. And so that's kind of that peer-to-peer solution is is probably the most significant theme that underlies most of the innovation that I'm seeing in the last five to 10 years. Another classic one is peer-to-peer lending, for example, and we've had a couple of peer-to-peer lending organizations here in New Zealand. We regulated them back in 2014, I think, one of the earliest jurisdictions around the globe to actually have a regulatory framework for peer-to-peer solutions. And we've done equity crowdfunding as well. It's all the same. So today, one of the biggest themes is around decentralized finance. So when it comes to payments, there's no bank involved. There's no central bank involved. There are no retail banks involved. There are no brokers involved. It's you and I exchanging through our digital wallets some kind of value or a token or some sort, but that's a peer-to-peer payment solution. So you can see whether it's wealth management or equity racing or uh, insurance or payments, it's all peer-to-peer. That's so interesting. And I think like you said earlier as well, it's all about the end result for the consumer and making it easier and much more accessible. I guess along this journey and seeing some of the status quo change for the fin services sector, what have been some issues that you've come across? We don't need to name names, but are there any sort of theoretical examples of where perhaps a, a company's fallen foul of the regulations or they haven't quite nutted out the business plan in such a way that they can take it from inception through to large-scale reality? I can give you one example. It would be the instance where um, somebody launched an app, an insurance app, I think it's in the UK or the US, where you could take a selfie the app would take the pigmentation of your skin and work out whether you're prone to certain diseases. And so 10 years from now, if you don't control that kind of behavior, there might be whole parts of society who are uninsurable because the algorithm picks up that you're prone to disease. And the, the algorithm may be right. 
I'm not saying the algorithm is wrong. It could be right, but you could ultimately become uninsurable. So these are ethical issues that exist within these technology-enabled solutions. And I'm not saying these issues don't exist today. You know, you can still have biases. You could be sitting in front of a human advisor and they might actually make up some assumptions about who you are or how risky you are. It's just a, it's a cognitive kind of reaction to what they feel about you. It's the vibe they get from you. Um, so I'm not saying those errors don't happen today, but it can be magnified and go on a very large scale if it's, if it's bound by technology. So that's kind of a classic example of how things can go wrong. On the flip side of that, those were some really fascinating examples of where things go wrong. Um, do you know, or again, you might want to name names in this instance to um, show the shining stars. What what are some of the examples where fintechs have got it just perfectly right? Most of the successful fintechs today are in the payment space. So um, if you go back, say, 30 years, um, having notes and coins in your wallet was almost a given. Even if you went five years ago or, or three to five years ago, having a card in your wallet was a given. But today, all you need is just a mobile device where you switch it on and you scan a QR code and your payment's taken care of. So for me, those are some of the benefits around using these technologies. And a classic example would be M-Pesa uh, in, in Kenya. They launched this payment app where you could actually transfer payments uh, entirely through mobile phones. And so what it did, it had a massive uh, financial inclusion push uh, in that the underbanked or unbanked population suddenly was part of the financial system, largely because all you needed was a mobile phone. You didn't have to have a bank account to actually make transfers and payments and all the rest of it. And today, M-Pesa actually has got 60% of the payments market in that country. So that's, a, that's, that's one of the big benefits is that technology enables financial inclusion. So when you've got large parts of the world still being underbanked or unbanked, you can use technology to kind of come up with solutions around that. And taking it back to one thing you mentioned earlier as well about um, just breaking down that middleman and the barrier between a consumer and the end result, open banking is something we hear a lot about. Can you just tell us briefly what does that mean to a business and an individual trying to access financial services? And is this something that we should all be embracing? Um, so... Open banking essentially means a framework where banks enable um, a third-party fintech to share your transactional data with that third-party fintech so they can actually run algorithms on the data and work out customized solutions for you. So it goes back to my earlier point about customizing solutions so it's designed just for you. So you end up with a cheaper, faster, or better solution around that particular product or service. So today what happens is if somebody wants to, or not, and I say somebody, an innovator, wants to actually better understand what your transactional life is in terms of what your income is, what you spend it on, um, there is scraping technology where they literally get you to put in your username, password on your banking app, and then the technology steps into that your feet and access all your transactions. So that's one way to do it. Uh, it's not the healthiest trend. It's been around for a long time. Uh, what open banking does is creates a regulatory framework which enables banks and other financial institutions, or it could be utility companies as well, to share your personal data with a third-party fintech 
but with your consent. So you always have a tick box saying, am I happy to share this with XYZ Fintech? And if you say yes, then the benefit to you is the, is, is the convenience that someone's actually worked out the best solution for you. And it's always a balance between how much you, you know, kind of weigh between your privacy versus convenience. So you're always going to have that kind of, you're going to get caught in that crossfire around how much of my information do I give up in return for what they call convenience. Now, can I be bothered to get out of bed to go and buy some shares? So right now you don't need to. You can go, Alexa, buy me 25 shares of Apple and Alexa will go and execute the, the, the trade for you. So that technology exists. So coming back to your question, it's all about the balance between privacy and convenience. And so what open banking does is with your consent allows a third party fintech to pick information off on you, just on you, from your banking data supply to the third party so then they can run the algorithms and come up with solutions for you. So that's essentially what open banking is. Um, so it's a solution, it's a more permanent, a more robust solution um, to kind of screen scraping. How important is it to focus on the ethics with all that you've just spoken about, with that data sharing, with technology stepping in, what role does ethics play in it? I think, I think it, plays a huge part in this. Um, so when I earlier talked about creative thinking combined with the ability to execute, part of that ability to execute is about how quickly can you build up trust in your solution. And for any startup business, not just in the fintech space, it's all about how quickly is it, what, how quick is the rate of adoption by consumers, because that's where you're making your money. So you can continue to be unprofitable for many years as long as you've got a line of sight to what the profitability looks like. It's all the whole game is around signing more people up so they come onto the platform. So think about it. Going to my earlier point about peer to peer, the more peers are in the platform, the better for you, right? So that's the races to sign people up to the app not so much profitability, that's not top of mind. You still need a line of sight of the profitability, but it's not day one objective. So going back to your question, the qu it, it really comes down to how quickly can you bring the kind of build the trust in the solution that you've created. And so that, and the large part of that is really about the ethics. Now you could say that, you know, uh, it all comes down to disclosure because who's to say something is ethical or not. And the whole question of ethics is very subjective as well. So it's what, what you consider ethical may not be ethical for me. So there's this whole big argument around what actually is ethical. You know, you know there may be some people who say, oh, gender bias, I have no issues with it. You know, so you don't know. You, you, can't, you, might, you might disagree with them, but it doesn't make you right. So yes, as long as you can earn people's trust, the ethics takes care of itself, is, is what I say. But that disclosure, I think, is very important as to... If someone were to use open banking, going back to your point, and they were going to come up with some kind of a solution for you, then they should disclose what they did with your information. You know, how did they arrive at the solution? I think that connection is very important. And so disclosure for me is key in building that trust. As a, I mean, the, the reasons driving it may be ethical, maybe privacy, could be a whole heap of things. It could be security of your data. But all those elements drive the trust. And so it's almost in your uh, kind of um, interest for a startup to ensure that you have the security taken care of, you've got the ethical side taken care of, you know, it's transparent enough, so you earn the trust. Because ultimately the object is, 
objective is, are you earning the trust of your users? So that's how it's kind of bound together. But disclosure, I think, is a very important part of that. Disclosure and trust are such big parts of this whole industry, aren't Absolutely. they? Particularly as we go much, much more online. Um, I guess the pandemic as well has had such an impact on businesses from good to bad. Have you seen that uh, drive more people to trust online services of financial service providers or have you seen it become an issue? So in my view, by default, it's driven more people online because you had to. I don't know if it's necessarily driven by trust because it may be need. So there's two different angles to this. One, I don't have another solution, so I'm just going to have to do it this way because that's the only thing I can do now. So in my mind, specifically within financial services, going to my one of my very early points where certain industries have embedded costs, financial services is a classic one where you've got brick and mortar buildings trying to service people. When you have something like a pandemic coming along where physical distancing comes along, um, fintech is the prime solution for it, right? So you, you, like I said, you can't get out of your house. How do I transact? How do I pay someone? How do I deal with my insurance? I take my mobile phone out. So in that sense, whether you trust it or not, perhaps a whole heap of people around the globe ended up that with the only solution being the only solution. So you had to adopt it. So which is why most fintech companies would have seen a huge surge in new users through 2020. So one, people had more money because they stopped spending on travel and everything else. So they had to use investing apps and things like that. So the huge interest in user numbers for some of those fintech apps. On the flip side, whether you trusted it or not, that was the only solution you had. If, you, if I look at it, if I step back and look at it from a New Zealand perspective, I've always thought that anything, any solution that is digital in nature, which all of fintech is, it's a great candidate for exports because it's border agnostic. It, it doesn't care whether the border is closed or not. Digital exports are, in my mind, um, it, it's, it's a significant area that you know, New Zealand is yet to kind of leverage. So if anything, from a, from a country perspective, I think we are placed really, really well at this point in time where we've got good IP here, we've got good infrastructure, famous for number eight mentality, we create solutions so we are creative. Yes, we can improve our ability to execute on ideas. Um, and so FinTech, in my mind, is one of those prime candidates that export the export market should be looking at. I, th- I think there's massive benefits to the country for it. So. And I know you've spoken about this previously um, with us offline, um, but you have a really interesting way of looking at crises and authentic. Can you explain a bit about your view of crises and how there's a way to create opportunities within that and talk a bit more about your thinking on things are going wrong, but where there's a door that's closed, there might be a wim- oh, window yes. open. Yeah, yeah. So that comes from a, a more more basic uh, philosophy that I have. And that is, when you talk about creative thinking, it's all about breaking the frame of reference. Like we all spend our days within certain frames. So for example, you know, I heard a, I heard a, there's a, a must be quite a famous example. It's a kind of the mystery to be solved or the puzzle to be solved. You know, the investigators walk into this locked room and they find that Gary and Nancy are lying in the middle of the floor, in the middle of the in the, in the room on the floor, surrounded by water and broken glass. You know, and the question is, you know, 
what do you think happened here? And the response to it is Gary and Nancy are fishes and the goldfish bowl actually broke, right? Fell out the table. But the frame of reference was the minute you heard Gary and Nancy, you thought they were people, right? So you didn't have to think that they were people simply because they were caught Gary and Nancy. It's probably one of the best examples I've seen about, you know, framing. So we all frame things as soon as we see it. So innovation comes out of breaking those frames and going, you know, nothing's impossible. The question is, you know, have you thought enough about different alternatives by taking those frames away? So when you have a crisis come along, and I've always thought the innovator's journey, um, it's always a roller coaster. Um, You're always learning. And hence why I think for any innovator, the two kind of most important qualities to have is one is curiosity and the other one's humility because you're going to fa- you know, fail multiple times in the day. So going back to my favorite quote from Mike Tyson, you know, everybody comes up with a strategy till they get punched in the face. So that getting punched in the face is when you actually take your product to market for the first time. And it's a very harsh reality. A crisis not too dissimilar because you didn't plan for it. It's going to knock you down and you're going to have to recover. And it's a choice you make whether you want to recover or not. So you can curl up and cry and go away, or you can get up, dust yourself, and start again. So in my mind, it's all about breaking the frame of reference that we use. And it's all about training yourself to do that constantly. So never assume something. You know, to me, in my mind, it's all about breaking those assumptions. And that's the only way you can experiment. But then permitting permitting yourself to fail as well. Because when you try, you're going to fail. And if anyone who tells me that, you know, they've never failed, they're hugely successful, my answer to them is you just haven't tried enough number of times to fail. That's why you're always successful. You haven't pushed yourself. So in my mind, facing a crisis is not too dissimilar to your regular startup journey because you can wake up any morning and suddenly the, the kind of flow has fallen away from you. It's, it's how do you deal with it? Um, Specific strategies, like you said, I find the taking the frame of reference away is a, is a massive help. The other one is always fall back on your user. I come back to my original point. Innovation is all about creating the right solutions for the user. So sometimes it helps to reach back out to your client base or your potential client base and really nutting out what is it that they're looking to solve right now. And if you have the right solution, they'll come to you and they'll pay you for it. That's such I a good hope, point. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think it's such a great answer, Vino, and I think it really sums up the conversation that we've had so, so beautifully because it is an industry that is constantly evolving, innovating. It's something that touches all of our lives. Obviously, we all need to access our financial products and providers in some way. And, you know, I constantly find that there's solutions that are being presented that I didn't even know I needed. So it is an exciting industry to follow and so appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, Bino. If there's um, any listeners today that really want to understand a bit more about your journey, um, the companies that you've helped to establish and coach and get an understanding of how they can engage with the FMA proactively, um, perhaps before they start on the innovation journey or starting up a new business, where can they go to find you? So uh, th- there's an association or a grouping of regulators in New Zealand called the Council of Financial Regulators. Uh, the members are the Financial Markets Authority, the Reserve Bank, the Commerce Commission, the Treasury and the Ministry of Business. And they have a couple of work streams of which one is fintech and innovation. And as part of the fintech working group, outside of these five agencies, we've got the Department of Fintech Affairs uh, that's sitting on all our monthly meetings. So I currently chair the fintech working group for the council. 
couple of months ago, we launched a new service for regulatory guidance from multiple regulatory agencies. And how that works is there's a set of eight or 10 questions that get farmed out to you as an innovator. And it's just essentially to let regulators know, you know, what's the pain point you're trying to solve? Who are you solving it for? How are you solving it? What are some of the risks and benefits you see and how can we help? Once you respond with those questions, then you actually get the opportunity as a founding team to sit down uh, either in person or virtually with five or six regulators all in the same time in the same room. So hugely beneficial to the community in that you're not running pillar to post to first figure out which regulator do I go and talk to? And even if you identify the regulator, who within the regulator should I go and talk to? Because this group is dedicated just to fintech and innovation. So you're talking to the right people within the right regulators. So we're about to uh, launch a website called fintech.govt.nz where you can actually start uh, interacting uh, directly with the regulators to to get some regulatory guidance. So I would, I would encourage the community, anyone in the innovation community to go to the website. In the two months since launch, we've had 13 founding teams come through. So it's it's been hugely popular. Um, so that's open to any innovator right now, whether it's in New Zealand or overseas. If you want to, you know, you're an overseas fintech wanting to launch in New Zealand, we can we can still provide the guidance as well. That's excellent and hugely powerful. We'll put the link to that in our show notes. Thank you so much, Benu. Appreciate it. Thank the you chat. very much. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Laura. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review, or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under Alexander PR, or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.